Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander. And as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, one of the most enduring stereotypes of the Chinese in Africa is that they are importing massive amounts of labor into Africa from China, even bringing in convicts to work on uh, construction projects. So the rumors go, of course, this is one of those old wives' tales that has been debunked time and time again, and yet it continues to sustain itself. I am not entirely sure how. But it's really among the imaginations of a lot of Africans and Westerners who really have this idea that what Chinese enterprises operating in Africa, particularly in major countries like Kenya, uh, do not hire locals. Now, there's new research that's coming out uh, that refutes that stereotype once again. We saw this, Kobus, uh, I want to say about a year or two ago, when Barry Soutman and Yen Hai Rong out of Hong Kong did some research on this subject, really refuting that, that perception that Chinese enterprises do not hire locals. But here we are yet again talking about this very subject. One of the problems is that it's frequently very difficult to get get hard numbers out of Chinese companies um, doing business in Africa. And it's also a complicated mix of, of research methods needed to get both information from both state-owned enterprises and private enterprises. Um, so, you know, kind of doing this research is challenging and therefore it's, you know, kind of it, getting fresh numbers on, on this these kind of hiring practices is very exciting. Yeah, so getting the fresh data is very exciting, but also just getting the Chinese point of view and the take on this. So in this discussion of Chinese labor practices in Africa, uh, very rarely do we actually hear from the Chinese themselves. Too often it's Africans and Westerners filling in the blanks because either the Chinese don't want to speak to researchers, journalists, or other stakeholders, or either they can't simply because there's language barriers. So it's a reason why we're very, very exciting excited to have uh, Luo Yating on because she has just completed a research project uh, on this very subject. Uh, so Yating is a program manager at the Sino-African Center of Excellence Foundation in Nairobi, Kenya. For those of you not familiar with SACE, uh, it's a think tank that fo- focuses on sustainable China-Africa trade and investment issues, and they do some really good work. And there was recently a conference in Nairobi where uh, Yating was able to present her paper, Workforce Localization of Chinese Construction Companies in Kenya, Perception and Practices. Welcome to the broadcast, uh, Yating. Thank you very much, Eric and Kobus. Um, it is very much an honor of mine to join your podcast and share with you about the findings we have during our research in the past two years about Chinese companies in Kenya. Well, let's get right into it. So you've talked to about 75 different Chinese companies. Uh, and I think before we, we kind of you know, get into the details of your findings, let me just kind of bring people up to date with some of the, the data that you present in your paper. Kenya currently has about 40,000 Chinese nationals 400 Chinese state-owned and private enterprises, and about a third of all the construction business that's currently being done in Kenya, and that is a lot right now when you see what's going on in cities like Nairobi and then also the Standard Gauge Railroad and some of the other infrastructure projects, so a third is a very large number, are all being done by Chinese companies. So, Yating, the key question here is that in your findings, you said around 90% of employees employed by Chinese companies are locally hired. So why is it that the perception is really the opposite? 
Um, I would say there are several aspects to the perception. First is that um, although we found that around 90% of the employees in Chinese companies are locally hired, um, middle management are hardly localized. So most of the project managers, most of um, officers in Chinese companies, they are still Chinese nationals, although like around around. Um, 95 of the part-time employees are locally hired compared to 78% of full-time employees uh, locally hired. So that might be one aspect to it because a lot of people talking about them, they are middle class. They are educated people who want to get hired in big companies. Um, when they can't get the opportunities, they want to strive for their, strive for their kind of like uh, opportunities in uh, job opportunities. Um, and the second part would be, as you mentioned, Chinese companies hardly speak to outsiders. It takes us it takes us such a long time to build trust and let them speak out to us, even if it's positive facts that they really hire um, local people. Um, and there's another aspect to it is about the skills. So why Chinese companies hire um, don't hire local management people is that they found um, the technical skills and also soft skills of a lot of local talent. They are not really qualified. That's why a lot of training programs are now initiated here by international partners, by banks, by Chinese companies themselves to help educate, to help train local people for better positions. Can you talk us through these training programs a little bit? Like it, it um, in your report, you make the point that there was one philosophy of training which turns out to not to actually be very successful in Africa, and now they're exploring other training options or other formats of training. Like, wh- what are some of the challenges that they've faced so far in in in, in training Africans? Uh, you know, and and what and how are they moving into to the future in this issue? Uh, for training programs, I would say the first of all, companies will start with like paying tuitions for their employees to study in local technical education institutes. But that didn't work out because a lot of local training institutes do not have the capacity for updated training. Um, one one reason for that is that they don't have enough. They don't have updated equipment and machinery for training workers that meet industrial needs. They might have the machinery equipment that dates back to 10 years ago. And then the skills students learn from this equipment cannot apply to current situation. And the second is the teaching capacity. A lot of teachers, they don't get paid well enough. They don't pay teachers well enough to get qualified people from, um, from... teachers with industrial experience so that teachers just teach according to manuals or instructions from the textbook um, without any practical training. So um, a lot of graduates, like a lot of companies complain to me that they found the graduates not qualified. So there's this a funny story that a project manager in a Chinese company told me. Um, he hired someone who has a truck driving graduate certificate. However, when this guy come to work, um, he honestly told the employer that he never touched a truck before, but he learned everything through books. Um, so this, this situation happens very often in a lot of companies. Um, so that like by kind of like training in simply like technical training institutes does not work out for everyone now. So a lot of companies, they try to seek alternative ways. For example, um, 
we now encourage a lot of companies to work with technical training institutes to collaborate on programs. So, for example, our companies can contribute technology, equipment, and machinery, while the technical institutes can contribute curriculum, contribute students that are meeting um, admission requirements, so that they can collaborate together and train um, talents that really ready for immediate employment. That's one way. Or that's one way out. We suggest to companies and institutes. You know what really bothers me about this whole conversation is how so much of the tension and the anxiety and the misunderstanding is the Chinese bringing this on themselves. And there's this kind of cycle that I'd like to get your your feedback on. When you were talking with the different companies, and I, I thought it was interesting when you said it was difficult for you. You're you're Chinese. You're a Chinese national. And you find it difficult. Imagine again for other stakeholders, either journalists or you know Africans, uh, you know who, who want to engage Chinese companies. So Chinese companies are very resistant to work with outsiders and to talk and share and to communicate. And then what ends up happening is the outsiders then start to kind of spread these vicious rumors. Well, that then makes the Chinese companies that much more fearful, hostile, and reluctant to then work with outsiders. And what's annoying about all of this is that in some cases, some there's a great story to be told here. Uh, you know, your research is actually quite complementary complementary to 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 some of the you know to the really wonderful narratives that the Chinese are trying to put forward about training programs, about hiring locals. But yet, it's so difficult to get this information out of the Chinese companies themselves. And so, I'm just wondering: Do you have any sense when you were talking and doing the interviews with these various companies? Do they know how skeptical? outsiders are of their work and what they're doing? Um, I believe they, they are aware of that. That's why they try to keep outsiders away. So even if I, when I was doing my research, I come across many difficulties. This, this is a very interesting story was that I approached a many, uh, owner of a, a private-owned company and talked to him about where I'm working in, what I'm doing, why I want to ask you these questions. And I said, I'm, I'm from Sales Foundation. And he was like, yes, this is fine, but you might be cheating me. So I was like, no, it's okay. Come to our office and see, meet the team here. So I, told, I, I, gave, him, I gave him the address of our office. Then he came here because our office is located in an office building. So the entire office building is called ESBC. So there's the ESBC logo outside of the building. And when he came, he found that, no, your company is called ESBC. You are not working for Sales Foundation. I can't talk to you. And then I, I said, no, you can ask the reception that whether this is the office building, like we are one of the companies that are hosted here or that like we are one of the organizations that are hosted here. And he said that I can't because I can't speak English. So I guess like I feel like there are a lot of challenges here. It's language barriers, it's in distrust, People don't talk to outsiders and it kind of like reinforces the perception of local communities and of outsiders that Chinese companies may be guilty, like feeling guilty of themselves and they don't want to they don't want to review the ugly facts. OK, well, let's get, let, let me let me just push you a little bit here. Is that something about the Chinese in Africa because they feel they're under attack or is that also something that the Chinese in China also feel? Because you know there is no free press in China. You know that people are also very reluctant to speak openly for lots of different reasons. So is this a, a, an instinct that runs very deep in, in these people that extends far beyond their presence in Africa? They pick this up when they're back home in China. 
because talking to the press or talking to outsiders never really brings anything good to you. So where is this coming from, this type of reluctance? I would say it's like, in general, I wouldn't even say it's a China-Africa thing. I mean, Chinese companies here, they are like any other companies. They come across their challenges, their difficulties, like British companies years ago, like American companies years ago, and perhaps German companies. Um, I would say that it's something that companies here, they are, they are new and they want to keep low profiled. It's very, it's very, I, I can totally understand that when people say something, because the envir- business environment here is very different from business environment in China. And people don't find the norm here, how they can, how they can excel in such a short time. So people just try to be conservative, be um, just below profiled. That's my understanding of their reaction. Um, and even even us, even the foundation itself, come across some difficulty two years ago when the media picked things from our re- our research report and then talk about it from their own perspective, their own perspective, and which brings some trouble to the foundation. And after that, we decide to keep it low. That we try not to we try not to engage with media too much because we don't have a very um, mature system yet to deal with the media. But after that, we, we try to figure our own way out. We try to figure out how to do a press release for events, how to do this and that, and build a media system that we can that we can deal with the media. Not necessarily that every journalist needs to speak good about us, but but we can provide the information we, we have and not to kind of like misguide people. Because sometimes it's also our fault not to give full information about something. And I think it's the same with Chinese companies. For companies, you, you can see China, um, some, some big companies in Kenya, when they have a media department, they are more willing to deal with the media, we're willing to deal with researchers and outsiders. But for some companies, they don't have such kind of capacity. So they try to refrain from, refrain from this conversation and avoid making mistakes. So you, you mentioned the language barrier. Um, the you know the 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 issue the the dis- descriptions of some of the language problems in that you describe in your report were actually I found quite funny, where you know kind of it's such a it's, it's such a difficult situation um, where literally people don't speak each other's languages at all and they're completely dependent on on you know gestures and you know cell phone translation apps to try and communicate and it's 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 a surprise to me that anything gets built at all not not you know not even to mention the massive kind of infrastructure networks and so on that chinese companies are setting up in in kenya um do you think is it going to be easier to teach african workers chinese or is it going to be easier to te- to teach chinese managers english which is a bigger challenge um, I think they are equally challenging because each language is a new <laughs> world for an outsider to learn. Um, I know a lot of project managers, that Chinese project managers, they are learning Swahili instead of English because they find it more, uh, they, they find it easier to learn. But it, it's, it largely depends on one's language capacity, like language learning capacity, not just because of the languages. But I found that, um, and the phenomenon I described, uh, you described, and I wrote in the report, is quite common. That a lot of companies, uh, especially on the on the construction sites, the um, master chief or the like, the, te- the senior technical workers the company brings from China, they are very good at, at technical skills, but they can't speak English at all. So they communicate through like through like iPhone, that like, using Google Translate or any dictionary. 
um, electronic dictionary. Um, but I believe that the situation is much better in, for example, technology company. I found that in a lot of like e-commerce companies or um, even like large um, telecommunication companies, um, like Techno, like Huawei, like Kilimo, um, because a lot of a lot of um, Chinese employees in these companies, they are well educated. They are um, they they speak Chinese. They speak English well, and the people they hire, they also receive higher education in Kenya. These Kenyan people also um, can communicate better in English because a lot of construction workers they are actually not very good at English as well in remote areas other than Nairobi. So Swahili speakers and Chinese speakers on, in construction companies they are very hard to understand each other. But English speakers from both sides in technology companies they are ming- they, they, mingle, they are mingling up ming- mixing up very well. So I believe that when Chinese companies move up the the um the kind of like technology chain or um, di- uh, moving across different industries rather than just construction, um, the communication, the language barrier would be less a problem. Let's talk about some of the problems. Uh, and you identified the problems on the Chinese side. And you touched on this earlier on um, about, you know, how, why they're bringing in Chinese workers. And first, though, before I get to those those questions of the problems that you brought up in your report, Let's just kind of set a, a benchmark here. How common is it for Chinese companies to bring in Chinese workers, and what kind of people are they bringing in? Um, also, it's very hard to bring Chinese workers here. Like, actually, companies don't want to do that because they need to be responsible for the employees' flights, accommodation, insurance, and people don't like to come because they don't want to leave their family, leave their friend circle. And usually, it takes them around eight seven or eight times of the cost of hiring a local worker. So they prefer to hire local worker. However, a lot of them complain that it's hard to hire qualified technical workers okay, here. I'll get to that. And so are the Chinese companies bringing in any convicted labor, any convicts or prisoners that you found in any of your research? Well, as far as I know, I didn't meet any of them. Okay. Okay. Um, you know, I don't think it's even legal. It's probably not. But you know, Cobus, this is the one. This is this is the trope that keeps coming up over and over again. Uh, you know, I guarantee you, in the comments thread of this show, there's going to be comments that the Chinese are bringing in, in uh, you know, illegal, you know, or bringing in convicts. There, it, it, yes. it's a guarantee that it'll come up. It always happens. It yeah. always does. So now let's get to the, to the problems that the Chinese recognize, and then I want to get to the Chinese complaints. And you know, so first and foremost, you said there is no formal recruitment process that the Chinese are using very kind of you know disorganized, informal ways to actually recruit employees. Talk to us about that, and then go back to talk about their terrible stakeholder communication. Those are the two big problems that you identified. Go ahead and let us know the details on those. Sure. So for recruitment process, now, that probably because the reason is that the supply is much larger than the demand. So a lot of companies, they just put up their job notices like on their, on their construction sites. There will be a lot of people lining up for jobs um, in front of their in front of their project gates, uh, their, their their site gates every morning for for the project manager to pick them, and some of them might put up some job notices on um, the community community communication board that not 
the not public notice board, but it's not very common. Um, and a lot of like human resource managers told me that usually there will be that there were high workers that are introduced by their current workers. So they will say my cousins, like the cousins of the workers or the friends of the workers, they will just come and work for the company. Um, and the company prefer this way because they feel they have someone as a referee instead of just picking up someone depending on their CVs. Um, and I believe this is not a very good way to source long-term qualified talent because one of the challenges they are facing is that they can't find workers with long-term commitment. A lot of workers want to leave that one day or two days just because 100 more shillings they can earn uh, per month in another company or um, they just simply don't want to work anymore since they have earned enough for the day. Um, and it's, it's also the cause of why Chinese companies cannot find middle management, local middle managers. Um, and I, I believe this has to change. I met some very, like, many new generation project managers, and they have very innovative, not, not innovative, but I mean, very scientific way in hiring employees. So some of them may, found, uh, may find a human resource agent to, to source a team of qualified workers for them, or they may, find, they may have, like, public announcement on newspaper for job recruitment so that they can they can evaluate a wide pool of applicants and then pick the ones that fit their requirements. Um, I was I was surprised by this finding that that it's so difficult to to get African workers to to commit long term to a company. Um, yeah, I was just you know kind of because obviously being the 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 dry, the un, unemployment is such a big problem in Africa, you know, and it's such such a big part of the conversation in in Africa. Like we need to solve unemployment. There's, and and it it just really surprised me that it was actually so difficult to have people kind of hold on to jobs that they already have. Um, is there? Did you get any kind of um, idea of? Whether there's any way to to change that situation, were some companies more more successful than others in dealing with this problem? Um, yes. So company, some companies they succeed in negotiating with the labor's union about paying workers by month or by weekly at least, so that com- so that the workers will at least have half a month or one month commitment. Because um, a lot of companies found their workers, they want to work for the job, but sometimes they disappear after the payday or after like three o'clock every day because they have made enough money for the day. Um, and w- we also have to admit that some Chinese companies, they, they expect workers to work for longer time than they might want. So, for example, for the projects, they have a deadline to meet. I know some companies might ask their workers to work over the weekends with more pay. So they will compensate the workers with a good amount, but they need the workers to continuously working seven days a week. Um, and that may be another reason why workers want, do not want to stay for long term. So it's, it's quite complicated why companies and workers cannot work with each other for long term. It's not a, a one way thing. It's, I believe it's two way that the, impro- the, the workers select the companies and the companies select the workers. So let's go a little bit more into the Chinese complaints. And you, you identified this in your paper as a very specific 
uh, kind of set of issues here. And I'll read the four issues, and I want to add a fifth one to it and get your feedback. So you talked about poor technical skills. Uh, you talked about how a lot of the the people that are coming to work in Chinese companies don't have the proper education. They're not trained in how to use the equipment. They oftentimes break the equipment, and that's a frustration for the Chinese companies. You talked about the work ethic. Um, there, you know, people are sometimes considered to be unmotivated. They want to leave at three o'clock. Uh, there's issues of petty crime, and that they're stealing some of the the, the company's property. Um, you mentioned also about Chinese communication skills, that a lot of the Africans and the Kenyans don't speak Chinese, and that's a problem for the middle managers who don't speak English or Swahili. Um, and then, this is an interesting one, is the hiring of workers in remote areas, particularly because ch- the Chinese are building rail lines and, and large you know, freeways and highways that extend deep into the, to the rural areas, so getting qualified workers from the cities. And I thought that was a very interesting point. The last one that I want to bring up in and this is a little bit of a sensitive issue here, but is racism. And did that ever come up as an issue? Because one of the things that we see in some of the research and also just some of our own kind of interactions is some very kind of provincial thinking of Chinese towards blacks in particular. Did this idea that, you know, they're all lazy, they're, you know, fill in the blank this, they all drink, they all, they don't work hard, they don't, you know, all of those different kind of racial categorizations and those tropes come out. Did that come up in any of your discussions as well, either on the record or off the record? Um, so actually, when I was interviewing the companies, I tried to ask them about, about, about this kind of thing. So do you think racism is right? Like, or do you... Does your company that because I usually interview um, higher management at least project manager in the company, so ask them whether you have any policy that's prohibit racism in your company. Maybe not you, but your impro- your subordinates, the technical workers from China. Do you have any policy in curbing racism? Um, most of them, like I was in ninety above ninety percent of them say yes, um, but I believe that this is reflected in your daily actions and speech and interaction with people. But I won't say that it's a racism, racism, since a lot of Chinese people, they have so little interaction with Africa and a lot of their perception are influenced by the media uh, or or the, the, the book they read or um, the movies they watch. So I, I will raise a very simple example so my parents, my grandparents, they've never been to Africa before I came here. They don't even have any interaction with here. But what they perceive Africans, they, they think poverty and danger because that's what, that were, that, that's what they saw in the news reports or in the movies. A lot of movies that black people are, 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 the, are the bad people. And in the news, Africa is just poverty and diseases. Um, but when people really interacting with each other, I don't, I don't think that people really think you are like you are African, so you are lazy or somewhat. That people categorize because of the experience they have. I know a lot of like Chinese people say Europeans are lazy because they get they they don't work on Sunday, they don't they, they like they get off so um, so early, they don't work overtime. So these are like stereotyping uh, towards 
towards many other countries. Yeah. It's not like targeting, the, focusing the, on everything. The Chinese are very well known for basically looking down on most of the world for, when it comes to work ethic. I mean, the Chinese have a really, really high work ethic. Seven days a week, this idea of eat bitter, you know, you, you work until you die if you have to. Kobus, it's a little bit like the Japanese work ethic in that sense of, yeah. uh, you know, that's what comes before everything. Kobus, when... Let's look back now on this discussion that we've had, because in so many ways it challenges the prevailing narratives, but those prevailing narratives are very durable. Is there anything that you learned here today that, you know, changes the way you think about this issue of the labor discussion? And the next time that you're going to have a conversation with somebody online or offline who says, you know, the Chinese are, you know, hiring, not bringing, not hiring locals, they're bringing in convicts, what what are you taking away from the conversation that will help inform your, you know, discussion on these issues? In the first place, it really helps. It, it adds to, to a, a slowly body, a slowly growing body of research refuting a lot of these stories. You know, so it's, it's another fantastic voice showing, no, there is a large, you know, large, large numbers of locals are being hired. Um, you know, there are no conv- convicts being hired um, or shipped out, you know, and so on. It's, so so it, it, it just it's, it's another kind of layer to, to that narrative, which is great. Um, in the second place, I think it also raises um, a lot of questions which are frequently left off the table in these kind of discussions. So frequently... The um, the African worker is left as basically as a, as a kind of a, a blank a blank space um, in in these discussions, and the, the discussions seem to to assume a certain a certain kind of African worker without ever really questioning what the what real African workers want or need from Chinese companies. Now, I think this the study raises really interesting questions um, by articulating it from the Chinese side and like saying how they how they view the situation, which then raises questions that need to be answered from the African side. So, you know, kind of, I think, I think that is, um, that is a really useful kind of conversation starter. Yeah. And I think what Yating did very well in this report was to highlight the complexity of the cultural communication. And I think a lot of foreigners, Westerners who have not worked across cultures, uh, underestimate that the, the sheer difficulty of that. So, you know, using a language device like a, an Android phone, Google Translate, to communicate the language is only part of the issue. The other part is the culture part. And, you know, here I am as an American living and working in Vietnam, and people speak English, but it is incredibly difficult to communicate with one another uh, across languages and cultures. So I think that's a very similar challenge in what's going on in Africa with Chinese companies, and I think Yating did an excellent job uh, of kind of bringing that. But Kobus, I'm going to kind of, I'm, I've got my head in my hands right now, just furious, because if the Chinese government and Chinese companies did not complain and play the victim card of how they're treated in the international media and how they're treated by outsiders, particularly in the West, um, I wouldn't have a problem with the fact that they're so reticent to deal with the media and to communicate out. But the fact that they want their cake and eat it too is what really just annoys me. So on the one hand, they complain vigorously that they are not treated the same as, say, the Americans or the Europeans. Even this is the same in the diplomatic level, you know, where, you, you know, in South Africa, you know, they, they, I know the embassy there. I talked to some of the, the diplomatic officials who said that they get unfair treatment. Well, it's because they don't talk to the press and they don't engage academics and they don't talk to stakeholders. They don't participate in conferences like this. And Western embassies do. Western companies do oftentimes. And so I guess that's the part what Yating was saying to me, which just grates me so much, is that they, on the one hand, if they didn't care, then that's fine. 
but they care and they complain at the same time. Yating, those are my frustrations. You've heard from Kobus. Tell us what you want people to, to walk away with from your findings and your research. What's the key message that you want people to, to understand? So my, my research, basically the finding of my research is that the labor localization of Chinese companies is a trend, although like, it takes time to institutionalize. However, like my thought over this is that um, it's, 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 it's like a set of rules, like, so Western companies or like um, the companies we that are already here for a long time, it's them who set it's they who set the rules, set the institutions or the atmosphere or the business environment here for companies to work in. And Chinese companies are the latecomer, so they come and learn how to play by the rules. So if imagine if it's Chinese companies come here one hundred years ago and build up this like and, and then build up this implicit rules of operating like operating in this in this commercial world in this like social world how would that be that maybe maybe companies western companies come here they need to learn how to keep quiet or like not to talk too much (laughs) or that to work super hard so it's i I don't i don't think there's right and wrong this it's just it's just like it's some some kind of like implicit institutions that companies need to learn to play so that they can be they can be deemed as a good company here. Lawyer. So there are so many different standards. If a foreign company is working in in China, that would be a totally different kind of kind of standards that need to follow. So it takes time for Chinese companies to learn, and there's no point in what in, in hiring in that because. Because companies need to survive and driven by their own commercial interests and their own sustainable development interests, they will, they will, they will either follow, play the rules well, play by the rules well, or they will create a new set of rules for others to follow if they have enough political or commercial power in this. That's very intriguing. A whole new set of rules for others to follow. That might be something to keep an eye on. Lo Yating is a program manager at the Sino-African Center of Excellence Foundation in Nairobi, Kenya. Uh, and she's also, incidentally, one of the hosts of the SACE podcast, which you can find over on the SACE website. What is the website? That is sacefoundation.org. That's S-A-C-E foundation.org. You can see there's a box for the podcast. And I have to say, Kobus, um, we've been doing this show now for six or seven years. And in the five or six episodes that they've done, she's outdone us on guests big time. I yeah, mean, amazing like, guests. Yeah. It's really incredible, the quality of the guests that they're getting. I, you know, wow. So go check out her podcast uh, over on the SACE Foundation website. You know, Yatin, thank you so much for, for joining us and congratulations on the excellent, excellent paper. Thank you very much for your time. We're really excited to have you back again on the show to when you update your findings. And Kobus and I will be back again with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to Facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show or follow China Africa News that's updated every four hours, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadenesk or Eric at Eolander. That's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. Subscribe to the China Africa podcast on iTunes or download the mobile apps for iOS, Android, or Windows Phone. Just head over to your favorite store and search for China Africa.